Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Hello to everyone and welcome to tonight's installments of Beyond Governance. Um, as always, I'm delighted to be in your company and tonight is certainly no exception. I contend that, you know, despite the grilling economic and social hardship, we don't have to look um, uh, up to our leadership because they failed and continue to fail us. Uh, my sense is that their preoccupation is to save their own skins through court. Uh, how do we fundamentally change the course of history when we are fighting all the time through the courts? The last time I checked, we did not surrender our civic virtues to leadership that's entangled with fractional battles which, which are played in courts. I mean, every government department uh, uh, spends fortunes in legal cost. Every state-owned enterprise spends fortunes in legal cost. Every single municipality spends uh, fortunes in legal cost. The only winner here, in my view, are the, you know, are the lawyers. They are criminal the system um, at the expense of service delivery, thanks to incompetence, inexperience, and at worst, corrupt officials. Um, as if this is not enough, we have government that is underspending. Um, I looked back, I looked at some of the Spanish party back in 2020, and I picked up the higher education, police, health, and cooperative governance, uh, as well as small, as well as small, as small business development, and energy. We are among the departments that underspend their monies. I mean, in my view, this is criminal. And heartbreaking that got, you know, departments such as police and health and particularly small businesses, you know, are underspending. You know, to think that department of small business uh, development is a bedrock of recovery and let alone redress and market penetration for small businesses. And yet money sits in banks instead of helping deserving businesses. How did you get to this point? How do you change this particular picture? Because it's just absurd and, and painful what we see. I mean, for me, the, this picture is even worse when you look at um, the state-owned entities, uh, you know, the, the state-owned financial institutions in terms of an expenditure. It certainly breaks my heart to learn that, you know, uh, the likes of, like, as I've pointed out, small businesses for pennies underspend. I think the biggest challenge is in, in government is the obsession with compliance, as if, as if it is an end in itself. I get it. I mean, I'm pro-compliance. But the question is, what is the point of getting clean audits when the refuse is not collected? The street that is functional. Sewer water runs into streets, into rivers. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of small businesses that are not paid for, service re for services rendered by, by businesses. And how do you juxtapose this with millions of rents that uh, are left or are sent back to treasury. You know, for me, this means we're missing the bull's eye. The bull's eye sits on three items in my view. Uh, firstly, let's address the capacity of state. Secondly, institutionalize performance culture. Thirdly, let's implement consequence management as per the guidelines of the AGs. I mean, the Auditor General from time to time would outline uh, areas that needs to be addressed and, and an action step that needs to be taken. And none of these things happen from time to time. These, in my view, are 
management, uh, the areas of management which, which must be accompanied by ethical leadership, which appears to be a scarce commodity like rain in a desert. If you doubt my sessions, do me a favor, peruse state capture, look at AG reports, and you know what I'm talking about. Welcome to Beyond Government. My name is Nimrod, and thanks for joining me on this journey of African horizons. Before we get into the gist of the conversation tonight, allow me to thank Simon and his crew for I hope they have done a sterling work. They have exceeded their, your expectation as a listener, and uh, they are back on your reader tomorrow. In the same vein, let me uh, take this opportunity to thank uh, the crew that is driving this particular show. Thanks to DJ Flo. Let's not fight to that, my brother, and Levisa for coordinating the show. Uh, tonight we have a special guest. Uh, they are, these are regular voice in the show in the name of Professor Bonang Mohali, who is the chairperson at Business Group and, a, and the chancellor of the University of the Free State, as well as uh, Mr. Ellen Mokoki, who is the CEO at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Saki, in short. Uh, tonight we are debunking the you know, government's economic and reconstruction recovery plan, which was announced by government back in 2010, in 2020. You know, to use the words, as I'm setting the scene, to use the words of the, of the president, I mean, the CEO of the Black Business Council, you know, Hanki Matawane, he came to the show at some point and he uttered these words. I paraphrase. If South Africa was, a, was competing in Olympics of developing plans, we would be winning gold medals. We've got another plan that we'll be talking about tonight. And, 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 and this says to me, it's, it's an indictment. If this argument holds, it's an indictment to the leadership. And if you agree, it's a disgrace. As, as people do not eat plans, we need plans that are translated to, to practical actions that deliver the value for money. In any case, it doesn't really matter what I think. What is more important is what you think as a listener. Uh, I, I definitely implore you to weigh in on our conversation. Uh, if you may, you can maybe even ask questions to my guests tonight. I'm sure they will be happy to uh, give you your, you know, to give you the insight on another question that you want to raise with them. Our SMS line is 34519. The telegram is 061895. And of course, you can tag me at Mbele Nimrod. Gentlemen, good evening and welcome to the show and thanks for taking time uh, tonight. Good evening, uh, Nimrod, and uh, good evening to Bonang, and uh, good evening to your listeners as well. Yes, indeed. I must also say good evening to Letebele, uh, Dr. Nimrod Mbele, and my lead, Ntate Allen Mukoki. Thank, thank you, Ntate uh, Mohali, for those uh, uh, kind words. Um, one of the things that perhaps maybe we could... Uh, touch base on because it has made headlines, you know. We've noted, uh, I think, during last week, if I'm not mistaken, you know, the former uh, CEO of of ESCO, Mr. Bramliff, made some damning, you know, accusations uh, against the president, Um, you know, in in as far as the, you know, ills that we've seen at ESCO. What do you make of this, um, you know, uh, you know, Mohali? And what are the implications of these things, you know, because some of them uh, have sort of propelled the argument. We suggest that the president needs to appear before the commission. So when one leaves this at the level of principles, not just personalities, one needs to acknowledge that 
on the 19th of December 2017, the 54th elective conference of the ANC in Nazareth where President Ramaphosa became the president of the party, introduced three things, and he called it the new dawn. It is this notion of economic growth, of renewal and unity. So let me start with unity. How do you reconcile, on the one hand, the people who are still determined to state capture, to corruption, bribery, stealing and cheating, because they're sitting with the money, they don't want to lose it. But most importantly, they know that they're going to jail. And on the other hand, you then have people who have chosen to be on the side of the angels and say, our job is to root out and defeat state capture. Neither shall the twain meet not in a hundred years. So the president was setting himself a target that is improbable, impossible. He will never be able to achieve in his own lifetime. So lastly, you see my grandmother used to say, when you choose to dance with the devil, the devil doesn't change. You do. The president has done nothing to change the maths since that fateful day that gave us CR17 because he still chose to keep 30 ministers who are heavily implicated in being central and protagonists in state capture. As we speak today, in today's cabinet, there are still no less than 10. And yet he says, I'm committed to renewal. How do you pour perfume on a rotting carcass? The stench will always be there. So let me stop then, Tatembele, and defer to my leadership. Interesting analogy. Uh, how do you pour perfume on a rotten carcass? I'm carcass. Tatembele, uh, your observation and your input, please. Well, you know, uh, um, uh, colleagues, and I think that your listeners, I think that one of the aspects that we have to accept about South Africa is that this is a very noisy and extremely noisy republic. Um, in the final analysis, quite a number of the issues that we're dealing with uh, are not necessarily unique to us as South Africans. Many developing, many developed economies have generally gone through these kinds of pains. We would not, of course, as the South African Chamber of Commerce, uh, take any sides in respect of any alleged uh, factional battles in the ruling party or any other political party, uh, for that matter, because we want to build relationships and we want to connect and we want to persuade and influence with our own ideas any power structure, whether that is the IFP, whether it's the NFP, whether it's the DA, whether it's the EFF, so we are, we are those kinds of people who are trying to unite society in a way that's cohesive and we're going to go and look for ideas and people who can help us to move this particular big train as we keep mentioning uh, all the time that we need to move South Africa from being a developed, a developing, sorry, economy to becoming a developed economy so that we start to look more like your Japans of this world, your South Koreas, your Taiwans, your old Hong Kongs and uh, Russia, Australia 
and 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 uh, and, and and some of these places. So from that particular point of view, the politics is uh, one of the aspects that are always going to be in play. It's a very difficult, as I said, noisy republic, and we've got a number of complexities, and I think that quite clear ideas and respects of how those things can be resolved. And I think that uh, my leader there, Bonang, is quite correct in that you've got a new president who comes in, and he is, in a sense, very much restrained in respect of the things that he can or he cannot do, precisely because he is put into the position that he is in by his party. In other words, he gets elected at his own party. He is not elected first by us, the citizenry. And that's one of the aspects that is actually stopping development in South Africa at this point in time. And I think that we, as South African Chamber of Commerce, we've even argued for an additional constitutional amendment in South Africa. Yes, we've got a really great constitution, and some people want to go up in arms and say, how can you want to ask for a constitutional amendment? Well, we've had about 17 since 1996, if you recall, uh, including the floor crossing uh, article uh, in the constitution. There's absolutely nothing wrong. When Fansel, uh, the late Professor Fansel uh, Slavet, was asked to look into this particular aspect, in fact, it was the ANC and the DA who combined their efforts to try and reject some of the proposals that were made in respect of how you devolve that particular power, where we believe in the context of South Africa today, you do need to have some element of direct election of those people who are going to be representative, uh, representatives of the people in the National Assembly, as opposed to the system that you have today where you have to vote for the party, and then everyone hides in that particular party, and if the party wins, the party then decides who are we going to send to parliament in terms of our own lists? I don't think that that particular system is suitable for us today. We probably need to have a system that would allow us to have an executive president, a president that we can hold accountable not through his party, but the president directly, so that what can we do? He can then put together or she can put together uh, the cabinet without necessarily have to, to look behind your shoulder in terms of whether does the deployment committee or any other structure agree, did I put all, everybody that needed to be in in terms of the provinces, where are the power blocks? Because that is restraining the capacity, because instead of going for merit, you go for political survival, you go for uh, things that are actually going to keep you in power. So let me leave it there for now as well. But we are not taking a position ourselves, that, uh, an answer that is direct to your, to your question earlier on, whether the president should show up. All wrongdoing should be investigated, should be dealt with by the institutional arrangements that we have in the country. We've got a criminal justice system. Everybody that has done wrong, they have to be pursued without fear or favor. And that's the only principle that we can ever support. And it really doesn't matter who that person might be. But we wouldn't necessarily take a decision and say, based on what the Zondo Commission revelations are saying, therefore we think so-and-so ought to come in account or so-and-so should not come to account. We generally stay away from directing how we think institutions that are governed by the Constitution of the Republic should actually operate because the Constitution is there to ensure that they are. Uh, so long as the institutions are actually being staffed by the right people and so long as they are doing what their constitutional mandate says they ought to be able to do, but operationally we cannot necessarily take a stand and say Nimrod needs to show up tomorrow and account for why is that high FM instead of Radio Network. <laughs> Thank you. Fair enough, and thank you for your insight, um, you know, the I mean, I think what is emerging from both of you, um, it's a question of 
uh, upholding the principle. I mean, if the principle is that of transparency and accountability, uh, and those principles cut across irrespective of whether you are the president or not. And I'm sure as we proceed, uh, let's see how the, the, the this particular saga unfolds moving forward. But you know, as, as I conclude on this matter, I mean, I, I want to echo the sentiment expressed by 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 Dada Mahali, and to 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 you know to to an extent the same sentiment that's shared by you, um, Ellen, is the fact that you know this is what the president has inherited, and he finds himself in a very difficult position, as in that he's not in a position to to advance his own prerogative, even though somehow sometimes the the legislation or the constitution allow him. But because he has to consult the party and then come back, and which makes it very difficult. But anyway, let's leave it there. Um, as we follow up on this particular issue, along the same trajectory, if you don't mind, we have become one of the top ten borrowers in the in in in, in the world: Japan, India, Russia, Russia, Hong Kong, and so on and so forth. And and the last time I checked, the World Bank suggests that we are, we have reached approximately 800 billion rands in terms of borrowing. Can Dr. Mahali give us a, a snapshot of what is the downside of this heavy borrowing that we have done, which, such, which in my view and in the views of many uh, South Africans have not really reached the, the, the intended beneficiaries? Dr. Mahali. You know, when you talk about 800 billion, it's a lot of money. But you see, that's not our total debt. Our total government debt in 2020 not even 2021, is 3 trillion. So the Minister of Finance during the medium-term budget policy statement says we are borrowing at a rate of 2.1 billion a day, every day. And our debt servicing costs alone are 20 billion. In fact, of the 1.8 billion that we collect through SARS, 70% of it goes only to three things. Number one is the public sector wage bill. Number two is the debt servicing cost. And then lastly, of course, um, it is the, the social security bill because the math doesn't add up. Uh, before COVID, 16 million people gainfully employed. COVID loses 3 million in total. When you look at how many jobs we have created, plus or minus, there's still a minimum of 1.3 million people who are out of their jobs in 11 months since just March. So South Africa is hurtling fast towards a fiscal cliff with the country's debt, as I said, 3 trillion, where we are borrowing much more than we are generating. Our debt to GDP ratio is 93%. But when we include government guarantees to the more than 750 state-owned enterprises and state-owned companies, that number shoots up to 110%. You see, it's not the percentage in and of itself. It's whether you are able to service that debt. US of age 200, but they can pay. To show that we can pay, when we wanted to come up with money for COVID, the Solidarity Fund business that Ntatemukoki represents, not once but twice, had to come and rescue us as a country because government missed not once but twice its own deadline.
So we are, for, we are forecasting a GDP growth of between 1% and 2% in 2021, whereas this year we say this uh, economy is going to contract by real GDP of minus 8%. And our tax revenue has declined by an estimated 18%. In addition, 2020 was characterized by dwindling exports from South Africa for the period April through to August. To give you an example, I mean, we normally sell on average 500 cars a month every month. In April, we sold one. So the road to, to recovery will be long for the whole world, especially that we are now in the second wave infections that pose significant downside growth risk. Let me stop there, Ntate Mbele. Thank you very much, uh, Prof. Mohale, for that detailed breakdown of where we sit. Um, as we gravitate towards the, the, the commercial break, um, you know, you've raised very pertinent issues. One, which, which obviously is the actual debt, um, you know, the, you know, the debt of the country and how much we're borrowing and how, how much are we servicing the debt which obviously runs into billions of rents. And the cost drivers in your um, um, articulation is the fact that our public uh, wage bill is the highest. And what is also the highest is the social security bill, um, social security bill in the form of grants. I mean, uh, we've got about 17 to 18 million South Africans who are depending on grants um, um, versus close to about, you know, 10 to 12 million of South Africans that uh, are, are currently unemployed. So, you are quite correct by making reference to the math that does, which does not make sense. But as we, you know, take a break and come back in a second, I want us to reflect on the kind of conversation because the, 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 the president's, uh, reconstruction plan does speak to these particular issues. These are known issues. Perhaps maybe what is more important is how far have you moved? How far is the needle moved in terms of addressing these particular issues? Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. And we are joined on the line by my honorable guests, uh, being Dr. Bonang Mahale, as well as Dr. Ellen Mukoki, giving us insight in terms of how do we move away from the kind of economic quagmire we find ourselves in. Uh, if you've just joined us, Dr. Mahale, you know, when, before you we went to the uh, the commercial break, he made some stunning uh, position in terms of how much we're borrowing and how much we're paying in terms of the interest rates and the cost drivers for these particular, you know, uh, uh, um, activities. One is the public sector wheel, wage bill and the social security bill. We know there's so many people that uh, depends on social grants. On top of that, the numbers don't make sense in that we've got more people who are, who are drawing uh, you know, salaries or, or, or grants as a way of, of, of security um, system, but also, you know, when you, when you compare that with the numbers of people that are formerly employed, it doesn't make sense, which means the the revenue um, has, has definitely grown yield. And, and, you know, in his way, in his view, the revenue are back in, in 20, you know, 2020 it declined by 18%. So we, we are definitely in a big problem. But the question that the listeners Perhaps maybe wants to uh, derive some kind of solace from is the kind of 
um, you know, the, the economic and reconstru- reconstruction recovery plan which government has put forward. The question uh, to both of you, how far is needle, the needle moved along these painstaking points? Let's start with the public service, public, uh, you know, public service salary bill. Ellen, do you have an, you know, a, a sense of where things are uh, from SAC in terms of that particular issue? Well, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, thank you for a very beautiful question. I think that we, we, we made a very different uh, uh, observation as well as a contribution insofar as that is concerned. The issue to us has never been about the public service bill, uh, sorry, uh, wage bill, uh, so to speak. It's not the salary bill that's been the issue. What you have there, you have a problem where we've struggled with a concept of building a meritocracy within the public service environment. And what we mean by that is that if, again, I go back to this example, let's not try to be something that we, 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 let's not try to be original. In other words, there's no reason to be original when other people that you ought to be looking up to have proved to you what system actually does work. Yes, you can try and, you know, create a level of flexibility and innovation around local conditioning in terms of a particular system. But let's not look very far. What are we trying to do? We're trying to solve three problems, right? Unemployment, poverty, inequality. How do we think that we're actually going to be able to do that? We can only do that by saying we want to deliver on these particular pieces, at least the 17 ideas uh, of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Because only when you reach that particular level do you become a developed economy. And they start with things like zero hunger, uh, the end to poverty, uh, good quality education, good health, and all those particular bits and pieces, gender equality and all these things. So if you're not working on those specific things, you're not necessarily going to get to where you're supposed to get to. The other problem with us is that we're killed by this idea of short-termism. Well, we assume when we're fighting a fire, as soon as we put down that particular fire, our problems are actually going to be solved. There is no problem in South Africa. And, and hear this, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this until I'm, well, I'm darker, so I'm going to be gray in the face, not blue like the light-skinned people as yeah, some of my friends were. I'm going to say this. There is no problem in South Africa that can be solved in less than 20 years. So you have a 20 to 30-year problem, and that needs you to implement long-term strategies over a longer-term period. So whether you want to uh, go back to your own uh, national development plan or you go to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, each and every one of those particular 17 items needs to have a very clear strategy. Now, strategy is something very simple. Any strategy needs to be resourced, and it can only be resourced by two things and two things only, long before the money flows. It's people and it's ideas. If you cannot manage on those two aspects of people and ideas, you can probably throw in culture and values there. But people and ideas are the only two things that matter in driving any agenda for development or for change and for innovation, right? If you want to be aggressive and you want to be successful. So coming back to your question, if you then have to go into the public sector, let's not talk about money. Let's talk about whether we have the right people in the right positions, given the agenda that we want to develop in the first place. And the answer to that question today would be a resounding no, we do not. Yes, probably maybe 50%, maybe even 60% of people will actually end up being retained. But the other 40% of the people, they are actually wasting your time and my time and their own time because they ought not to be there. And they're not there. It's not their fault that they're there. They are there because we don't have a high level of capability in, number one, building 
reconstructed, right? Uh, attraction and retention and recruitment strategy around the right type of people that you want to come in, you want to bring into the public sector. So number one, if you look at the top level leadership, let's say you've got 32 or 35 government departments, you probably have got 35 CEOs there, DGs, if you want to call them that way. Maybe each and every one of them has got a, is going to have an assistant and maybe about maybe three or four chief directors or directors, that kind of stuff. So, but for each department, effectively, you could argue that 10 at least senior executives ought to be able to run that place. 10 times 35, that gives a number of about 350. I don't have a problem if you pay anyone, every one of those people 5 million on average per annum with another 5 million in bonuses. Here's why that is very important in terms of building a meritocracy. If you don't create the right level of the compensation structure and reward incentives structure in the public service, you shouldn't actually expect to recruit the right caliber of people. The people who run government departments that are very critical at this time in South Africa today ought to be the same people that can go and join any C-level structure of a JSE-listed company in Johannesburg. Yeah? Because now you are saying, I'm very serious about that. Then you can hold those people accountable. I think I read a report in the 2013-2014, the Auditor General's report, where the public sector, the state, spent about 120 billion rand a year in consulting fees. So let's stop arguing that there's no money. The money is there. So what we're now doing is we bring in people, we underpay them at 1.5, 1.6 million a year, and then they hire a consultant, a consulting group that they themselves pay 500 million a year. That's where the restructuring needs to start. First, we say, here's a template. What is the type of individual that we need to run as a director general? When we build that particular template, then we create an audit, a very intensive, high-level audit of the entire system in the public service, right? So that you end up in a situation where you say, my, my good friend at DG, National Treasury, Dondo, is he actually going to make it? My good friend at Public Enterprises, is he actually going to make it in this new template? Right now, those people are not asking themselves that particular question. They are assuming that as a DG of National Treasury or DPE or DTI, Lionel uh, October, none of those guys, I am actually the best candidate. And indeed, they are the best candidate given the template that you are using at this particular point in time. So I'm saying that you can't solve the HR problem until you go through all the pieces that starts with recruitment, who you attract, who you want to retain, training and development, a proper industrial relations environment that must exist there in terms of the climate audit of where people are operating, culture and values and all those things. And then deal with the idea of compensation incentives and recognition and then you are building a structure that is based on merit and therefore there is no such a thing as i'm hired here because i love the minister or the minister loves me you are hired here because you are the most competent candidate for the job in the whole of south africa not just in the public sector who is willing to step forward and do that particular kind of a job and when you have that you've got a performing state when the state performs, you, can, you then move into the two principles, and I'll, I'll stop after this, whether you decide are you going to tax and spend or are you going to spend and tax, right? Because you need to move away from the monetarist argument that says, oh, because there's no money, let's tax everybody else and see how we can spend on social services. So now you're spending on the right things, on the infrastructure, on the enabling environment, on education to build the level of skills that you need. And when people have got skills, they've got the education, they're not hungry, they've got jobs, then you can tax them because there's enough 
from where you can tax, you can then pay your, your problem that you spoke about earlier on of the big debt that you now have. So that's how the system ought to work. Everything starts with people and ideas. We have to start at the center. We've got a 20 or 30 year program that we must actually make sure it works. But until you fix the people problem, I'm telling you now we're on hiding next to nothing. Shoot, sure, that's a tall order. Thank you very much, uh, Ellen Mukoki, for that insight. Uh, Dr. Bonan, could you just chip in here? Something that I'm picking up from Ellen is that the strategy uh, that we need to look at or look thoroughly, it has to look at the quality of people that sit in position and the extent to which these people have uh, are given sufficient opportunity to navigate or to be to be innovative and creative in a nutshell ellen says we do not have a money issue we don't have a, a money problem we simply we've got the problem around the, the, the individuals who occupy those particular those particular positions because the template that we have used it is incorrect template so he's advocating for meritocracy he said, well, there's the, 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 the huge salary bill is an issue, but not much of an issue as such because we, we are using a wrong template. What's your, what's your take on, on, that, on that particular perspective? So to support Ntate Alan Mukoki, remember we used to have these good people. That's why during Mandela's time, we moved from a technically bankrupt South Africa to a South Africa which in five years quadrupled its GDP. He handed over to President Tabombeki, who gave us 43 consecutive quarters of positive GDP growth. Then in our infinite wisdom in 2007, we decided to go to Pulukwane and start the project of state capture. So state capture rested on four things, which is what Ntatemukoki is talking about. Number one was about create a shadow state. Not the government we know and the constitution we know, but the one in Saxon world. To repurpose the state-owned enterprises. Now I said we have more than 740. So in 27 years, if we had black CEOs in these 740 uh, SOEs and SOCs, and they served only one term of five years each, only one term of five years each, Today, we'll be talking about having 3,000 highly experienced African CEOs that we created ourselves. Unfortunately, where we are, we are now saying we don't have these people and we must still go back to the people that used to be CEOs uh, before us. The third thing was how do you replace the good people with the bad people? We didn't even have this thing called national treasury. It was four different departments, including the Department of Expenditure and Finance. We created SARS, which was amongst the top five revenue collection agencies in the world. So, and then, of course, last was to go to the trough, uh, the feeding trough. You're not happy now with stealing small change, like in 24 months, you finish two billion of VBS, you know? Um, you, you have laden ESCOM with 480 billion rands worth, worth of debt. You're not happy. So you now go to the biggest asset manager in the continent who's sitting at no less than 2 trillion South African rands, the PIC. That's why they sent their own ministers of finance there. But you see, if you do the back of the cigarette box, arithmetic, not mathematics, it dictates that 
if interest rates are about 8% and inflation is about 4%, then you must grow your economy by at least 4%. This is especially the case when considering that South Africa's population growth for the last 10 years at least is 1.5%. And yet in the last six years at least, we have not been growing by 1.5%. So what it means is that our GDP growth has been less, which means that both our disposable income and discretionary purchasing power have been seriously eroded on a per capita basis. So South Africa's major economic constraints are many and varied. But let me just talk about the 70 billion that is planned to go to ESCOM over the next three years with the real risk of further bailouts as state-owned companies. Furthermore, social grant payments have been keeping pace with inflation, of course, which is necessary to protect the poor. In addition, capital expenditure by the government is budgeted to grow faster than inflation which is commendable, but operational costs have essentially been flat in real terms since 2017. So where is the money going to, to come from? And again, so this notion of reducing the public sector wage bill is becoming a tall order. The dilemma is who will bear the brunt of the planned wage cuts among government spending priorities, such as the departments of learning and culture, peace and security, health, economic development, general public services, social development or community development. Because you don't have the money, you have to shift it from the one to the other. The conundrum is the three-year wage freeze agreement that must be struck in a municipal election year 2021, where no less than 80% of the reduction must occur where trade unions are the strongest and most influential. This is the time where you real, you need a real wartime CEO. Not the one that's trying to maintain peace, but the one that says, my job is not to be popular, is to get the job done. It was General George Patton who said, great wars are won by good execution, not great plans, because good execution will save even a mediocre plan. So plans we have had, NDP, uh, RDP, Mandela. New growth path as Gisa Yapumzilem Lambonuka. Now we are talking about at least the fifth reconstruction, economic reconstruction and recovery plan. And that's not our problem. Our problem is execution. Can we just do for a change? Litebele, Mtimkulga Pugani. Back to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Makuse. Look, I think we seem to agree that the biggest challenge confronting South Africa is the ability of state to execute these grand plans that we have talking about. Which means, henceforth, all the direction has to be crafted or have to move towards uh, how do we help the how do we help the state? How do we build capacity? I mean, I'm sure the likes of Saki and the lack of uh, business leadership essay and the entire business fraternity has had some kind of strategies and approach on how to embellish state capacity so that we are able to to implement some of these plans that that are so grand in order for us not to move towards yet another plan but execute what you already have perhaps maybe the listeners might want to be are quite keen to say has the needle moved positively in so far as 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 from a business side of things 
the kind of programs that are meant to support the capacity of state and what has been the reception of the state on the advancement of business on critical positions or critical programmings which are aimed at addressing the, the skill shortages or experiences that we see. Has, is there any movement uh, in, that, in that particular respect, Ellen? Well, you know, Nimrod, uh, one of the most fundamental aspects of driving organizational change and renewal has got to be an acceptance of how you want to do that. In other words, uh, it's, it's common cost today, uh, and it has been probably for the last maybe 500 years, that when you try to drive uh, successful leadership and change, that is not just evolutionary, but almost revolutionary, you need to be able to figure a way of how you are going to do that on the edge of the organization, on the edge of the organization and not necessarily inside that particular organization. So to that extent, yes, indeed, you'd have the president who is constrained by his own political arrangements in respect of how the political party system is working in South Africa right now, given the constitution that constrains everything else. But... If you are going to then say we're moving South Africa from A to B, and I said I'm not aware of any other objectives. We only have those two. One, fix the unemployment, the inequality, and the, and the poverty. And the only way to do that is to create a state or a South Africa that is going to move from developing to developed. There are other people who've done that successfully. I mentioned those eight countries before fundamentally most of those particular places did not have an endowment of natural resources that South Africa has. But what they did do, they said, we're not going to compromise on a meritocracy. We're not going to compromise on building competencies in the era of human capital. That is a key idea. It is not currently taking place in South Africa today. Why? Because you've got too much stratification in respect of access as well as quality of what you are actually giving to the children, all right? So if you want to assume in South Africa that the standard of the better, not the best, the better education uh, system is probably maybe in the private schooling system, then you ought to make the argument why it is that the children who come from poor black families are not having the same access. It's a crime today that for children to receive a better quality of education, their parents must be rich. Or they have to have a lot of money because you have to take your, ch- your children to a high school in a private schooling setup where you want to pay something like 250,000 rand a year. How many people can afford that? So one of the fundamental mistakes that we've made in South Africa is not putting the right people around the issue of the fixing of the education all the way from early childhood education. Because by the, by the time the mathematics problem, uh, Bonang referred to arithmetic problem, by the time the arithmetic, functional mathematics, as well as mathematics problem arises at metric, the problem started in primary school. So if we're not resourcing that particular error, this is one element that we should be taking significantly very seriously. In We are going to take 12 years, we're going to create a revolution when it comes to education. Any one of the children of ours that are going to any school, they are going to get free access to the highest quality of education that is actually possible. That would require you to get rid of a lot of the teachers that you currently have in the system. And I can guarantee you that probably 40% of those people may not actually make it in the new template of the type of teacher that you want in the primary school, in the early childhood, in the high school, etc., etc. 
then let's go find the money. Let's go find the 25 billion or so and then sit down with Satu and all the other teachers' unions and say, we need 40% of you people to go. We don't want to fight here. This is not going to be one week for every month that you've worked retrenchment. No, we're going to be very generous. We will give you five or seven years worth of retrenchment package. Go. We want you out of this particular system. Why? Because it's, a, it's, it's not a cost. It's an investment. Yeah? We spend all about right. 50 billion. We spend about 50 billion on the World Cup and we spend another 50 billion on PPEs and things like that. So spending 50 billion on fixing the education is, is a pittance. Okay, let, let, let me take Bonang because we literally have about five minutes to wrap up um, on this particular issue. Look, you've raised, I mean, I think you keep on going back to the, the, the people and the extent to which you have, you know, the right people to restructure the, the economy as it were. As we're wrapping up, uh, you know, Dr. What I mean, I, I know what your, your passion is, but, but for a would-be leader who's listening to the show tonight, in turning around the ship, what would be your advice? Because we all individually have to make our contribution in our own little space. What your advice would be to someone who's listening to the show tonight in, in trying to get that person's thinking uh, in, in, in a direction that could lead to a better South Africa? What your advice would be? Ndate Mukoki is absolutely correct. So now there's a real risk of fiscal slippage, thereby creating a crowding out effect. So for me, the large budget deficit leading to government dissaving and then a subsequent reduction in the available pool of domestic savings that are necessary to fund fixed investment. This may result in a steep yield curve driven in part by a rising sovereign risk premium, which we now pay because we've been downgraded, which raises the cost of borrowing for various public and private sector entities. So we pay higher interest rates that lead to increased interest payments, which absorb an ever increasing share of tax revenue, thereby leaving less available to buy vaccines to build hospitals, to build clinics, schools and houses. So for me, number one, we must send the top state capture miscreants to jail to send a message that not all of us are corrupt. Number two, we must reduce state capture and corruption because as we speak, it's going on. I mean, Houghton says two-thirds of the PPE uh, budget was used in less than wholesome means. Number three, for me, you have to stop bailing out these state-owned enterprises. We just paid $10.5 billion to bail out SAA for the umpteenth time, but we couldn't save our own people by buying them uh, a vaccine. We need to reduce the public sector debt, the public sector total debt. Thereafter, you reduce the public sector wage bill Two different things. And then you need to create jobs because there is no honor um, in, in waking up and you don't know where to go. And then the two last things for me, you have to grow this economy. And then lastly, we must take education seriously. Thank you very much, Dr. Ndate Mohali. I'm going to reflect back to this particular issue. Let me give, uh, in, you know, uh, in, um, Ellen the same, uh, you know, grace. What would you put forward 
uh, you know, as a way of, of trying to get the thinking of a listener, uh, you know, listen to the show tonight, uh, some some level of confidence or direction on where the country should be going. Ellen? We have to change the constitution of the republic so that we have an executive president, so we can hold people accountable and get our representatives to account to the people who elected them and not to the political party. Fix the education, uh, as I said, and build a meritocracy. And if we do these three things, we stand a chance. There are many other things that we can count, but there's no time to count them, to, to list them. But these three basic fundamental things will give us a leg in respect of moving forward very rapidly. Thank you very much. Um, perhaps maybe uh, as, as, as we wrap up, I want to reflect on what, what are some of the key issues that um, both of you have raised. Firstly, uh, Bonang is of the view that let's, then, let's send a strong message by jailing the culprits of state capture. Let's reduce the state capture moving forward. Let's also stop the, you know, bailing out of the state-owned enterprises. Let's uh, address the public sector, uh, you know, total debt, which is different from addressing the public sector wage bill. Beyond Governance was brought to you by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making.